This is Wes McMasters and Pete Faziani sitting down with Ken Sherwood to talk with him about his poem, A Note from Theory Class, as well as um, the traditional red flag stuff. And we've been gone for a while, but I hope that you didn't miss us too much. Um, and we're going to start with uh, Ken reading Note from Theory Class. Note from Theory Class. In a parallel universe, a spunky graduate student ransacked ice cream trucks for spare change. The spunky graduate student was highly caffeinated. Bells chimed. The spunky graduate student stalked the university president. The president also was highly caffeinated, though for different reasons. While watching them, genius squirrels developed empathic skills. The genius squirrels ran the show. Theses were defended punctually. The genius squirrels fell for the spunky graduate, but the president embargoed all the nuts. So, um, like I said, we've been gone for a little bit, um, but we're back and we're going to start the interview the way that we always start the interview. So, uh, Ken, if you'd like to tell us what your favorite piece of mail ever has been. I had to think about that a little bit, and then it came to me, because it came to me over this, this past summer, uh, about six weeks ago. And I can't tell you where it came from or why it came. Um, but I had a small vial of bat urine <laughs> delivered to me. And so that doesn't happen every day. <laughs> and you'll just have to use your imagination to think, why <laughs> would anybody be sending bat urine <laughs> Who would, and I'll just, I'll add one other thing. I was glad to receive it. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Some secret CIAs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, and it's not easy to get either. You might might imagine. Yeah. Who would you convince of that? Yeah. How do you, how do you, yeah. You leave that to the specialist. I think that's the. I will say that of all, out of all of the interviews that we've done and all of the times that we've asked that question, that is the first time that anybody has said bat urine. <laughs> um, Many people say I've received a vial of something, but never... Not uh, bat yeah, 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 not, certainly not bat urine, but um, <laughs> great. Um, so let's talk about your poem for a second, a uh, note from theory class. So you, you teach at the Indiana University of Pennsylvania, and you teach, uh, you teach poetry, you teach a number of things, so... Uh-huh. So I teach American poetry, um, I teach digital literature, um, I teach some digital humanities classes, um, literary theory class. Um, so this poem literally was drafted um, in the midst of a class. Um, we were having a kind of an improvisatory fun moment, and, and we were looking at um, a piece that's a kind of a, um, a sort of a, a poetry generator, um, a digital poetry piece that kind of recombines um, variant versions of, of, of text to kind of um, give you a new poem on the fly. The piece is called Storyland um, by Nanette Wild. Um, and so we were talking about, you know, how it does and doesn't read as a conventional poem because it uses an algorithm. So sometimes the language or there are non sequiturs and things like that. Um, so we started trying to think about what would be the difference between kind of a computer following that algorithm where it's drawing on a database and assembling lines and something that looks and reads a little bit like a poem um, and the way um, a human might sort of more flexibly or, or, 
or creatively um, or eccentrically um, apply a similar set of rules. So, um, you know, if, if you if you know anything about how generative poetry or algorithmic poetry works, when people are are you know um, writing some kind of program uh, to generate language, um, you know, there's a set of rules there. You may or may not be able to access the actual um, uh, program. Uh, to see what those rules are, but sometimes you can infer them. If you if you pay attention to it long enough, you can sort of see, well, what's the internal logic of this? Um, so we just started playing around in class, um, basically pretending to write as computers, and but 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 you know inserting some of our own variables in terms of you know characters and images and things like that. Um, and of course, I turned it a little bit more towards a university. Context. You guys know we have a nice oak grove, oak grove out here with you know rabid squirrels running rampant through the place. So I was certainly inspired by that. That's uh, no, that's <coughs> great. Um, and that reminds me. So I've worked with uh, Ben Friedlander in the past and Steve Evans, and I, I know that you're you're yeah. friends with all of them. And, yeah. and uh, Ben especially had a lot to do with the Flarf movement um, some time back, and it, and I, I think that there's a little bit. I think there's a flarfy spirit yeah. Um, yeah. to to this poem. Absolutely. Oh no, you could you could poetry originated on a, on, on a couple listservs, um, probably in the late '90s, and um, it 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 came from a bunch of poets who had, and it was a small group of poets, and they and this was Ben Friedlander, and I don't know if Steve would have been there, um, a, a couple a couple other poets from SUNY uh, SUNY Buffalo at the time, and. Uh, and and they had friends elsewhere, and so they would have this chain message. And eventually, they started writing poetry together. And it had something to do with using Google to search terms from the first from the uh, prior line of poetry, and then sending it to somebody else. And then so, and then doing something with that search result and, and forming it. And I'm probably butchering what Flarf actually is, but um, but it had something to do with uh, a, a generator okay. of some kind, and then. The poet, the poet taking that, and it was also kind of a collaborative effort, um, which was really cool. Well, and usually, um, taking the kind of something from the rich, quirky sort of language that that people were consuming through the internet, and the kind of spam language that you know is, is more and more a part of our our reading life, right? Sure. You know, that's that sort of junk language that we don't really, you know, we certainly don't give it a literary interpretation. Usually we just hit delete, yeah. spam, right? And taking that and kind of putting putting elements of it into recontextualizing it in a poetic context in ways that are, you know, sometimes seem dumb, but sometimes seem kind of oddly profound, even though there's a sense of, you know, accident or juxtaposition or, or, or you know, a weird chance conjunction that, you know, on second read you think, ah, oh, that's, you know... That's kind of interesting, even though um, you know there might not have been the usual um, or the expected kind of intentionality behind it, right? Like I think, I think there are different methods of composing Flarf, but there's yeah. there's usually a little bit of giving up of that uh, authorial autonomy of like I'm I'm choosing a perfect world word, you know. There's a there's a bit of um, rolling of the dice um, involved uh, of some sort. Um, so this one has that in the sense of kind of the structure of it. If you were to look at Storyland, um, all of the poems that get spewed out by that generator, you know, will will have like three different characters, and one's introduced, and then another's introduced, and then two of them come together some way, and then the third one comes in and sort of, you know, 
unresolves their their situation or something like that. So you start to see there's a kind of a there's a pattern there. Um, and then this, you know, this is not a true flarf, I think, because you know I invented most of the words. Right. right. Uh, you know, I mean, I like actually to also sometimes play with you know more Google inspired you know um, kinds of compositional practices. But in this case. Um, we are kind of uh, exploring how to rehumanize um, a, a computer program or to think about what the differences uh, would be. So in a way you were like deconstructing some of that stuff in terms of putting it... Yeah, or maybe reconstructing sorry, it, maybe kind of taking it back in that direction and just trying to see you know, how it looks different. Uh, but also how, um, you know, if, if you were reading this next to the NetWild, you'd, you'd kind of see the relationship and you'd say, wait a sec, that sounds... That sounds familiar, even though there, you know, all of these elements are not actually found in the original. You'd, you'd feel kind of the resonance or the echo or something like that. It would be great if Flarf would make a comeback about every decade, so that we could, <laughs> we could compare a little bit so, of a refresher on yeah, the language. Absolutely. Yeah, well, and, and and I mean the drastic shifts that come with with um, a young generation that actually has a power over language that they don't, they don't even understand. So I mean, yeah. just. Phrases like on fleek and you know and, and different right. acronyms and and the use of emoticons, which ten years ago there was an entirely different uh, a different style and and I, I think that young people young, young people, people. <laughs> yeah um, I think that uh, I think that young generations that have this particular power over language don't understand it and they're forming they're forming language and they're being poetic in ways that they don't know and it would be great to have like decade flarfs where we get to compare and look back and see the way that language uh, changes. But um, it makes me think, too, Amanda Oakes, uh, a publisher friend of ours, just shared with me a poem by uh, this Asian-American a young poet, I think, that she's, I think that she's under 20, and um, one of her poems was composed entirely of things that had been tweeted to her mm-hmm. or direct messaged through Twitter to her. Anyway, there was a character limit. And uh, and it was just, and and she she had some kind of fame or her claim, so people knew who she was. But I mean, and I think that they were all from men, and they were all heavy, heavily sexualized and, and racist, and and it was it was incredibly powerful. And I know that's a different kind of construction, but it was really powerful to see that she had built this from something that yeah. had been sent on, over that medium. So so I think that I think that this is great, and that's one of the reasons that we like this poem so much was was. That kind of structure and that kind of play, and and it's it's a fun poem too, for sure. Um, yeah, I'm usually not that much fun. <laughs> yeah, I was inspired. It was a nice summer day. <laughs> we were all kind of playfully engaged in matching language. So uh, yeah. I was curious, how does this vary from from some of your other poetry then? In that sense, um, I mean that's a that's a big question, but um, I guess um, often the language is a bit more fractured. In, in poetry that I might sit down to write in a, in a different context. Um, so, you know, this has kind of a narrative um, to it. There are maybe slight disjunctions uh, uh, between one section and the next, but, you know, not super violent leaps. You know, you're, you're not caught in a surrealist uh, uh, maelstrom. You know, you can, you can, you can, you figure out where you're moving on the campus or whatever. So I think it's, I think it's a friendlier poem in, in that way, even though there's a, maybe a slight element of the absurd or something with the, with the squirrel and the president, uh, you know, um, maybe, maybe it's accessible. I don't know. I mean, it, I, I showed it to my daughter and she said, <clears throat> what are you doing there? So I don't, I don't want to make too broad a claim for accessibility, but, uh, 
I, well, I think that I think that it's accessible for those who are on on a university campus. There we at go. Least. Yeah. Right. yeah. If you were in theory class, yeah. you you know what's going yeah. on. Yeah. And that, there's a sense too where we we've picked, and I don't think that this is one of them, but we've picked poems in the past where we'll approach an artist and we'll give it to them. And they're like, I don't I don't get it. It's like, well, what do you what do you mean I don't get it? And and we have to take a step back and realize that a lot of our readers are not academics and mm-hmm. they don't study study poetry on a daily basis, and maybe that the aesthetic that we appreciated there is not is not what you know what Wordsworth was really saying when he met the common man or something like that. But, well, um, I mean, people also have sometimes <clears throat> mild allergies or even violent antipathetic reactions to poetry depending on their experiences. I mean, when I when I teach it to undergraduates, I often feel like I'm I'm trying to give a little bit of an antidote. Like, okay, some of what you think about poetry may not be true or doesn't have to be the case for all poetry. So like let's see if we could just hit refresh. You know? Yeah, right. Let's reboot and read this and, and, and see what we can do with it as a language experience. Um, and and set aside whatever kinds of issues you may have about whether you were competent to understand poems back in high school or something like that. Um, and you know, I mean, it, when well, <laughs> you don't get your haircut, Peter. When you go and get your haircut, and somebody says, "What do you do?" Oh, I'm a you know, I'm an English uh, graduate student. You know, isn't the response something like? Oh, I better watch my grammar, right? And then you say, "Oh, I study poetry," and then they say, "Oh, I never understood that stuff. That's too complicated for me, right?" Which is, I think, kind of a, a cultural misconception, or, or a, it's unfortunate that that some people have those kinds of attitudes. So, um, you almost need to say, "No, really, you do understand it." <laughs> and, there, and there's something really pleasant when when a student or when somebody that you know in the community. It strikes them that they like. We, we at a poetry reading last week. There was a girl that came up and she was like, "I just don't get poetry." And then she ended up crying during one of the poems and, and saying afterwards, "Like I just I didn't. I, whoops, I guess you know." And and yeah. so that's always a good thing too. But um, so speaking of the things that we've been speaking of, I guess you already mentioned one source of inspiration, or at least one one poet that um, that you kind of looked to uh, when you were when you were writing this this particular piece, but. What other poets are your are your go tos? And I, I I mean, so contemporary would be great. Um, you know, I, sure. That's not, you know. I can give. I can say one or two things. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a big shelf of poets that are important to me sitting sitting behind you. Um, but um, and it's interesting when you've been teaching for a while, what you're reading and what you're teaching starts to blend um, a bit. So um, I, I think they're both published within the last three years. Um, um, I'm teaching Bernstein's Recalculating and um, uh, Claudia Rankin's um, Citizen uh, this semester, two books that I read you know, over the last two years or so and thought, I want to keep reading these, which is you know, one of the privileges of, of being able to <laughs> teach courses and, and kind of blend your reading life with your like work, um, day-to-day kind of more professional thing. Um, so... Um, so you know that Bernstein was somebody that I studied with at, at, at Buffalo, and so I continue to be pretty influenced uh, by him and, and enjoy reading him and be stimulated by the things he's doing. So there's a kind of like, um, I mean, I think there's sort of like a, a theoretical impulse to his work, but also compared to some other poets that might get classed as language poets, a kind of a playfulness an absurdity, you know, um, there's a kind of humor there that I'm not sure I always, um, you know, am able to bring to my own writing, but, um, 
but I like it when it crops up from time to time, right? I don't, I don't necessarily have, uh, you know, uh, a shtick, uh, uh, but it's fun when that comes out. And, and um, you know, Citizen was just sort of um, such a powerful read for me. Uh, I guess recently, the last couple of years, I've been, I've been reading um, some writers who um, seem to be like kind of more doing projects that are grounded in some kind of historical or, um, you know, political kinds of situations. Um, Mark Nowak is another uh, really great poet along these lines, um, you know, kind of like a labor poet writing about, um, you know, Rust Belt kind of situation mm-hmm. in places like Buffalo or, or Cleveland. And, and then he's, he's got a book called Coal Mountain Elementary, which is um, kind of thinking about, um, you know, mining uh, disasters in West Virginia, but also like kind of ongoing industrialization in China. And then he's, there's a little bit of conceptual poetry kind of thing going on there because he's like a lot of his, the poetry is sourced and actually taking from news stories about, you know, industrial accidents and things like that. So, um, you know, not quite agitprop, but maybe a kind of a poetry that's um, at least as interested in, in, speaking to issues in the world as it is mm-hmm. in kind of creating an aesthetic experience or at least like not wanting to see those things as separate yeah. um and citizen for me just i don't know if you if you know this book i, no, I recommend no, I it um, um i mean it's prose poems in which um usually kind of an interior um um narrative narrator is kind of um dealing with like um, being perceived as a racial other in all these different kind of situations, you know, um, and some of them are really kind of mundane situations. I think probably for a person of color, you know, coming into a space and somebody like you know uses the wrong name because they you know are like just sort of confusing their three black friends or something like yeah. that. Um, but others are kind of just um, you know really profound, disturbing, dehumanizing kind of moments in in um in the speaker's experience well then it just it kind of it does a different work than sometimes poetry does in terms of um without like a hit big history lesson or without a big sort of post-colonial theory lesson or something um you know engaging you on an on a kind of an empathetic level with with um or engaging me anyhow um, with experiences of, of another that I don't have, right? I mean, I'm not a black woman. Um, you know, I understand that people have, you know, subjectivity uh, in a political world means that, that you have different experiences of the world and people, uh, you know, you're constructed differently by your situation and your events. Um, and I just think it's one of the more powerful books. I mean, I put it up there with, like, Invisible Man in terms yeah, wow. of um, the kinds of um, things that it provokes one to think about. So we'll see. I imagine it's the first time I've tried to, actually talk about it with undergrads this semester so we'll we'll see how that goes and whether they respond to it but it, it sort of felt like it's an important book that i'm like re reading and rereading and thinking this this seems timely and actually like i guess it's two years old probably but it seems like more and more timely every uh, every time i i look at the news i'm thinking you know um she's really talking about these issues um um i to say have you done something like this before? I mean, and, and what to, to what success have have students picked on the picked up on those things that you're picking up on in terms of the social things that you know the subjectivity things? Um, well, my graduate students are, are really into that. In fact, I think some graduate students who have only a modest exposure to poetry are kind of relieved if we can talk about 
social, political, and theoretical things because they feel less comfortable sometimes with, with issues of form and, and, and things of that sort. Um, I mean, I guess the challenge sometimes in teaching and um, talking about um, poetry that's, um, you know, that's, I, don't, I don't know how we want to describe conventional poetry in, in this context, right? We'll try not to be too academic, but let's just say that, like, that like lots of folks are, will, will come to poetry thinking about, like, Robert Frost or something, right? Um, you know, so as you move step by step away from that, like, there's not actually an identifiable speaker or there's not a rhyme scheme or... <clears throat> the language is kind of really fractured and syntax is broken. And like, you know, as we move further and further away from either the norms of like everyday spoken language or the expectations of like what a, what a traditional poem, whatever, however you define that might be, um, you know, people get into an interesting space. So the, the challenge is, um, you know, to find ways to talk about it or to share it with people where they, where they don't run away from it, where they say, okay, this is, this is strange, but not uninteresting, right? And then you have to get somewhere. You have to make at least enough um, of a journey into it where they think, okay, this is this is strange, but I kind of I, I like this, right? Um, um, and that's that's such an interesting kind of writing too. And I I just I, I haven't read this text, but um, I I just finished uh, Between the World and Me for the first time, and that kind of. I think that that's a little bit, I think he writes too much like an academic or at least like a journalist because it's just, it's oozing with Baldwin and it's oozing with Morrison and it's oozing with Malcolm X in ways that, you know, it's not, it's not so much coats anymore. You're, you're kind of this amalgamation of all of these. Yeah. And I think it's well done. And, um, but at the same time, I think that there's some problems with that. And, and the poetry that I tend to be drawn to is, is, doesn't have these kinds of, of overtones like so you know i would i would read lee young lee where where race race is present i think that he's probably my favorite poet and so race is race is present there but it takes this kind of secondary placement to to themes of family which of course race is tied to all of that too because the way that he talks about his family and the way the way that you know dinner is is, is, is all, all of these things are, are, are racial to an extent, but it, it's definitely an undertone as opposed to the kind of, I think, the charge that, that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, so, so when I think of what's going on in Citizen, um, well, you, you probably know either um, uh, Du Bois, uh, W.B. Du Bois' The Souls of uh, Black Folks mm-hmm. or, or Ellison's Invisible Man, right? In both of those books, there's like a moment where... Um, where a character kind of gets confronted with that, you know, like double consciousness kind of blooms when you realize people are not seeing me the way that I see myself, right? Mm-hmm. There's there's a disconnect there, and, you know, in those uh, books, it's almost as if that, like, that, that moment of shift becomes a thing that you carry with yourself, like, <laughs> from that point forward. Um, and one of the weirdest and more profound things in, in Citizen... Um, is the way that instead of that being like that one moment where you realize, okay, I'm like, you know, I'm living in a society that racializes me. It's sort of like over and over and over again in all these different situations. And, um, you know, um, it's, it's, it's kind of wild in that way. Um, it reminds me, or I think there's precedents in, in different, um, sorts of modes. Um, uh, you know, really a, a book, that's kind of in that tradition, I think, although I have no idea whether she 
was influenced by or, or would like this um, is uh, Charles Reznikoff's testimony, mm-hmm. right? Going back like 50 years, right? But this is way before Flower for conceptual poetry or any of this sort of stuff. Um, you know, Reznikoff is uh, basically looking to um, court records and creating poems uh, based on all of these different sort of tragic incidents that happen to people who are, you know, shot, killed, robbed, you know, victimized in one way or another. Um, and he takes the names out and he makes them almost into like, you know, pretty little lyrics, except the the subject matter are like these kind of tragic occurrences. And you, it, it can be a little bit of a downer to actually read um, <laughs> uh, one sort of incident after another, but it tells something about like, the United States experience as you as you read through those and the way that he's kind of woven a um, you know well, tapestry that's cliche sorry strike that <laughs> all right but you know where I'm going with it I mean there's a, a there was a, a book and I that's what I've been looking up um, Juan Felipe Herrera's um, 187 reasons uh, Mexicanos can't cross the border that kind of I read it in my a class in, in my MA that kind of deals with that that kind of same idea of social yeah. political construction of, of what it is that we're dealing with right now. Yeah. It's a pretty good collection of poetry. Um, well, so um, let's let's talk for a minute about your your style as a writer and and your practice as a writer because you've been doing this for a while. You've um, and and you you know the game and so so as as a poet who's been doing this as a real poet, what <laughs> what's what's your practice and what's your what's your daily poet life? Oh, I wish that I could say I sat down and wrote a poem every day. Um, I think, I think I have some. I think there are people like Ben who are very dedicated and or disciplined or um, have a practice like that. Mine is a lot more sporadic. Unfortunately, <coughs> um, I'd like to be as productive and uh, and prolific as that. Um, so I keep notebooks and you know I'm always trying to scratch out things that might turn into something. Um, but, and I used to write more sort of discreet, um, short lyrics and, you know, sit in a poetry reading and come out an hour later with, you know, something that was going to turn into a, into a, into a poem. Um, maybe it's because I've, um, been reading some of these kind of longer sort of project oriented, uh, books that I'm working this way, or, or maybe it's just, um, you know, maybe it's something else, um. But so, for instance, I've been trying to finish up for quite a while um, a project that is either going to be called coal or carbon, uh, depending. And we're in Western Pennsylvania, uh, as we're as we're talking. So, like you know, there's a big history. I mean, that's why there are so many people living in this part of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that that coal industry, which is now you know not as 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 productive as it used to be, um, but but we're still kind of marked by that um, here and. And there's still many people who have connections to it. I mean, the guy who fixed my sidewalk this summer, you know, out-of-work coal miner. So, like, we don't always think about that as, as an ongoing part of the Western Pennsylvania experience if we're on a college campus. But, you know, 10 miles away, um, you know, the price of coal is, is, is still affecting people's lives. Um, and I draw on, on a bunch of documents going back to the 19th century um, about, um, yeah, about the life of, of people... Uh, working around that industry, um, and then try to co- recombine them. Um, the one version of it is is going to be a sort of a, an interactive online sort of text. But um, I'm also interested in the way um, 
or I think seeing some other writers do this has given me permission to follow through on another thing that I'm interested in, which is trying to take um, some writing that can kind of find its way into the world in, in, in different formats. So um, ultimately I'm hoping that there's kind of like a performance version and a digital version and, you know, a chapbook or, or a monograph that like have relationships to each other, but aren't just sort of like, you know, a direct transposition of something from the screen onto the page. So, um, I mean, Perloff calls it a differential text, right? The idea that it, um, uh, a given quote unquote poem or work could be manifest in, in, in different, um, different formats, different mediums, different, different spaces. Um, so that involves like less of that sort of inspired consulting of the, you know, of the, uh, of the word salad that's floating around one and more like the, it's, it's like editing, um, editing any other piece of writing where you're trying to work with, um, with this, with this richer range of text and, and, and arrange things out of it that you like. So, um, and that's a new mode or for me, um, sort of a new mode to go full in on that. But, um, that's what I'm trying to do. One, one of course advantage is like, it's, it's a kind of a work that's, different from um, the inspired inventiveness of, of writing a one-off lyric. Uh, you can kind of come to it, you can sit down and say, okay, this is where I'm at, this is where I'm trying to get to. Um, so it's it's a really kind of a different process. And sometimes I like that because I feel like I can, I can make, I can, I can make some progress, I can travel somewhere. Other times it, it, it can be a grind actually too. Um, but I want, but I want to get somewhere with it. So it's like, you know, that Halfway actually, up the mountain, whatever. That leads into my last quite leads to my last question. Do you have to event uh, twenty minutes? Oh, okay. I'll give a long answer. <laughs> um, so my last question: um, you're you're a jazz musician as well. Um, so what you were just explaining, and and so that kind of transition from from poetry on the written page into the, into these different formats. Um, I, and and the composition process that you were describing, how do you do you see yourself as a musician being influenced by that kind of work or that at least that part of your artistic person yeah. Yeah. Um, being a part of the rest of this too? So there was a period a few years back where I was writing some stuff to be performed and going way way back to like my undergraduate years. You know, I used to do play with play with a jazz group and we mixed jazz and poetry and improvisation and and all of that sort of stuff um the the groups that i play with now we're not actually doing jazz poetry so there's not like a direct you know write some material for the gig kind of um, um relationship <clears throat> but i do i do think um the the improvisatory approach to music the idea that you have a structure, but you're going to want to go in there and invent new things within that structure and explore permutations of of, of things you've played before and that sort of thing, um, you know, it can be a way of thinking about writing, and it's and it's a it's a pleasing one to me sometimes. Um, so I'm sure I draw on that. Sometimes it's conscious. Other times I think, you know might need you to say, hey, that seems, you know, I, here's that relationship I see. Yeah. But uh, I think it's part of my, um, well, 
I mean, I was obviously an English major in college, but I think the thing that most informed my relationship to poetry and art was playing music, right? Like, I took lots of English classes, had some great teachers, right? But as a young person, you know, at least until I got to graduate school, it was, um, you know, the access to creativity and the aesthetic that I was getting through music that was really, um, you know, where I was learning things. I mean, I was writing, um, but... I think the lessons, whatever, the wisdom is too grandiose a word for it. But, but anyhow, the confidence in like thinking about how you can make things um, um, came through the music. And I think, I mean, um, some people would suggest that even when I'm teaching a class, that there's a kind of an improvisatory nature yeah. of that. There's like, you know, <laughs> there's a little outline of what we're supposed to be doing. But, you know, if you say something interesting... <laughs> boom, I'm ready to, like, riff on it and see where we can go. Um, And, you know, to me, that's a kind of a creativity in dialogue and teaching when, um, you know, you depart from the plan and you make something happen that's, that's, that's interesting, that's, that's not anticipated, right? I mean, all the most important intellectual experiences for me were like that. It wasn't someone delivering prepared wisdom it was that moment where the discussion takes a turn somebody injects something that was totally unanticipated and the whole group has to figure out like what do we do with that right and then you're actually you know making something right um and i see a connection between like making something in a good sort of intellectual discussion making something in terms of a you know playing a solo in the middle of a, a jazz set or you know making something with language. Right. Right. Um, well, and it keeps me interested, right? I mean, to, to kind of write in a mode that I'm comfortable with, um, you know, that, that, wouldn't, that would make something beautiful but not surprising to me, that doesn't, that's not stimulating to me, right? I'd like to get into a space where I'm slightly confused and then surprised by the results, and, you know, if they're bad, then you never see it. If, <laughs> if, they, if they continue to interest me a week or a month later, then it's like, all right, I think I can share this with people. Yeah. Hopefully they have a similar response, and then you're like, all right, that was good. And that seems like a much more powerful aesthetic than something like Kerouac's Book of Blues, where, you know, all of this is very purposeful and all of this is very... I mean, it's, it's, it's based off of improvisation, but it's, 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 different, it's different to allow to allow for that kind of freedom that you're talking about as opposed to trying to, to embody that. Well, I like Book of Blues. No, I do, too. I, I do, too. I don't mean to... I yeah, think there's I improvisatory yeah. things going on there. I mean, sometimes it seems a little weird or scattered, right? But but that's also... I mean, if you think about a, an improvisatory aesthetic, like you have to be ready to play wrong sure. notes. Right? Yeah. I, mean, I mean, good improvisers sometimes go to a space where they're... You know, where they can't quite handle it, right? Yeah. Um, you know... Uh, but, I mean, the thing about Book of Blues there, which is, I think, interesting and important in the way he improvises, is that um, in, in, a, in a pretty direct way, I think he's paying attention to the sound of words and allowing mm-hmm. those, uh, that sentence to take over any kind of intentionality or, you know, um, denotative meaning of what, you know, what's going on there, right? Well, and it cleared space for, it's cleared space for 
poets like Yacht Blanc and, and, and crazy things that we're doing now that never would have been possible without that, I think, well, that text. <laughs> Yacht Blanc goes back way before Kerouac to the Dadas and the future well, yeah, style poets and yeah. things like that. But, yeah, but, I, I, but I, maybe I, it gives us a way to understand yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, because my, you, access, my yeah, access is through, yeah, through Kerouac, yeah. and I mean, I like Dada, yeah. too, but my access is... Yeah. Book of Blues, Yacht Blanc. That's that's where I, I go, and, and I also I also don't know much about the history behind yeah. what he's doing. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's there. You should take a class with me sometime. I should. <laughs> yeah. Um, I we should probably tie this up. But um, so this has been Red Flag Poetry, sitting with Ken Sherwood. Make sure to check out his poem on uh, redflagpoetry.com. Uh, subscribe while you're there. And this is Pete and Wes saying, uh, see you next time when we sit down with Tony Valone to talk about some poetry from a while ago. Thanks.